Hey, it's Scott Lips, and welcome back, my friends, to another exciting episode of Spin Magazine's Lip Service. My next guest is the frontman of one of the best new rock bands out there today. That is the real deal. They are the Grammy-nominated, incredible Rival Sons, and he is one of the best voices in all of rock and roll. He is Jay Buchanan. The band has been blown up in the last few years, even nominated for two Grammys, and they're bringing real rock and roll to the masses. They have a new album coming out, actually two, the first one in four years. It's called Dark Fighter, so we'll get into the tour, we'll get into the new record, and even touch base on the next record, Lightbringer. He's never been to the show, so we're excited to have him here. Welcoming to the show in just a moment, J.B. Cannon of Rival Sons. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. And now a word from our new friend of the show. Fellas, do you feel like you might want to spice things up in the bedroom? Bluetooth tablets just for fun will bring that added spice and fun back into your bedroom. What's a Bluetooth tablet, you say? It's a chewable tablet with the same active ingredient as Viagra and Cialis. The difference is it costs just a fraction, it's delicious, and you don't have to deal with going to the doctors and having that awkward conversation with them. It's as easy as going online, speaking to a medical provider, and they send them your way. Use my code for a free month supply. Go to bluetooth.com, use lips, and you pay only five bucks for shipping. Do yourself a favor and bring back the fun into your bedroom. And now back to the show. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Welcoming to the show one of the greatest singers of our generation, Mr. J. Buchanan of Rival Sons. How are you, my brother? That's very kind of you to say. Dude, your voice I'm is doing incredible. Good. Thanks, Scott. Incredible. I've been sitting with the music for like the last few months, and man, you made a monster record, so I want to get into that. The record is incredible. It's coming out soon, I think June 2nd. June 2nd, Dark Fighter drops on uh, Atlantic or uh, Atlantic Low Country Sound. You know. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about the next new record, even, which is coming out. So Lightbringer. But first, I want to get into your whole history, your path in life, your journey, and kind of how this all began, how you started back in the day. I think you grew up in Long Beach. Well, you know, I moved to Long Beach after high school. I'm actually from a really small mountain town, not too far from here. You know, you see the, the mountains are covered with snow right now. So you see the tall one. Yeah. That's Mount Baldy. <clears throat> and... Uh, so right on the back side of that up near the top is a little mountain town called Wrightwood. So if you ski or snowboard, uh, mountain highs up there. But I grew up there, you know, very, very small town. And tell me about your upbringing, like what it was that made you fall in love with music early on and were your parents into music? You know, I, you know, by this time I've, I've tried to answer that question so many different times and every time I dig into it, there's something new for me to discover, yeah. you know, something new for me to reveal. Um, music is just one of those things that it was never not there. You know, like my, my mom sang in the house. My pop was a musician. They always had jam sessions and stuff like that and parties at the house. And if the parties weren't at our house, I'm, most often they were at someone else's house. You know, back in my early years, because my parents got, uh, they got religion right about the time I was four mm. or five, you know, uh, that whole like evangelical sweep that hit the, hit the nation just before Reagan came into yeah. power. Um, cause you grew up Christian. Or? No, yeah. Pentecostal, Pentecostal, you know, so, but before they got religion, 
it was parties and like just really good times, really good times. And it was just constant music. So music was one of those, it just, there's nothing else like it. And when I go back to being a child, it just seemed as natural as anything else. I thought everybody played music. I thought everybody's parents jammed. I thought everybody's parents, I thought it was that. So when I would make friends at the beach or, or, or meet new kids, I'd be like, oh, hey, so what instrument does your pop play? It was like, like everyone like, huh? had to play music. Yeah, I just thought everybody played <laughs> yeah. music because it's like, it's such an easy, well, it's like an easy communication. And when um, music occupies a, a really certain a certain place because music always sounded like honesty to me, mm-hmm. you know, like that's the real truth. Because when people start talking, um, they'll try to sell you something or they can be lying or whatever. But music, when they start singing, that truth. is the honest, they can't lie because you'll hear it. Yeah. You know, and early on, it seems like singer songwriters were a big part of your makeup musically. I think Joni Mitchell. Oh, there's no doubt. Van yeah. Morrison. Uh huh. So talk to me about kind of your earlier influences, and later on, obviously the British Invasion. And mm. it's funny because the band is this interesting combination of like for me the British Invasion, some soul, some Motown, mm. a lot of American roots too. But it's this amazing kind of combination of music. So musically, where did it all come from for you? Well, I think first and foremost, you know. Growing up Pentecostal, and mind you, that was probably like five, six years. And then my parents just kind of backed off and wanted to step away from churching. And they're still very, you know, uh, religious and God-fearing people in, within their own home. But the, uh, the social aspect of it, you know, when they were doing all of that, I was, I was introduced to an environment very early on where adults, grandparents, everybody, like they, um, they kind of just like lost their shit every, every Sunday and there'd be tears, people speaking in tongues and like just losing it, man, losing it. I can't even imagine what that would be like. Being a little kid watching adults completely surrender themselves and you know, they would do like these altar calls where people would, I guess it's kind of like a confession, but it's like rededicating themselves, you know, and you just watch adults just act like you would see the child in the adult. Mm. And, and I know that's really wild, but for me, looking back at that, it was such a beautiful thing because it gave me a context for what adults were. Adults are just children that got older and they still have regrets. They have, they make mistakes. I'm like, so um, I never grew up in an environment where I saw adults or authority figures as infallible in any way. I saw them as very vulnerable people. Mm. What is your relationship with religion now that you've kind of grown up that way, by the way? Oh, I think that I have sought, you know, I've gone through a lot of different religions, man. I mean, like, really deep down the rabbit hole. I think that for me, I have sought to understand what creation is, you know, universally the idea of God or creator or like all of these things. I've been through enough things in my life and I have witnessed enough things to know there's certainly something at play there. And I think from a young age, I knew that I was given an advantage. I was given a voice that people told me they liked to hear. And I think that that happened really early on. 
And so that I think I got to a certain age and I wanted to do what I could as a person. And this is really going to sound very hippie, but um, I think that I wanted to seek God in return Mm. or whatever that creative force is. I wanted to seek that and to have a healthy relationship with that. And at the same time, um, try to be ethical with my art so that um, it's kind of like a Hippocratic artistic oath. You know, like artists are either the kind that are just going to be selfish and they're going to do the look at me and all eyes on me, or I see music as a vehicle for growth. And I see it as a, uh, a, a salve for, um, for just about anything, you know, it heals wounds and it does all of this different stuff. But I think that I, I sought to try to live that way in order to earn back what I was given, mm. you know, it's yeah. interesting. So early on, you had a couple of strange jobs. I think I read, Jay, that you worked at a mortuary. I did. I, <laughs> I worked at a mortuary. What was that like? It was probably the best job I've ever had, you know. I can't call music a job. Yeah. It's literally playing. I play. I don't know and if I'd I have the paid. stomach to work at a mortuary, though. I feel like that would be a really tough place. Because I guess in a way, you're right. I mean, you're around a lot of love because a lot of people there are sort of embracing the family member or whoever it may be. But you're also dealing with death, too. So in a way, I think it would be really hard for me to be around that. But for you, I guess it was sort of inspirational in a way. I think it was certainly inspirational. I think that, uh, you know, when I was in high school, I got introduced to like platonic philosophy and then that led to many other philosophies but that was something that finally clicked for me because it was the language of it was the language of like real thought and truly seeing thoughts and you know all the way until you the you know thoughts or viewpoints were distilled and seeing things through to the end and that was so attractive to me but from there I jumped to Eastern philosophy. And then, you know, like your late teens, you get all doped up on the beat poets, yeah. you know, and <laughs> just like the whole thing. And then yeah. you get that Eastern mysticism and all of that. And I think that the relationship with like, you know, reading like the Tibetan book of living and dying and like all of that stuff, Meister Eckert, and, and trying to understand what death is in our vernacular because I remember being a teenager, like a late teenager, right? And every, like, our death reminders in Western culture, it's such, it's such, like, it's so evident that, like, aging and death is, like, it's, like, taboo, right? And so for me, I was looking at that going, like, well, this doesn't make sense. Like, how can a quote-unquote Christian culture be so afraid of death when they've already they walk around professing that there's a promised land right on the other side. What's going on here? <laughs> right. I, think, I think everybody's losing their goddamn minds. So anyways, uh, my relationship with trying to understand those things at a young age, and you know, I was definitely very, very naive, but you do what you can. It's funny because there's a song on your new record, Nobody Wants to Die, which is a banger, an amazing song, by the way, but it ties right into what you're talking about. Yeah. Philosophically, it's, it ties into all the writings we were speaking about, but it is just a straightforward, you know, rock song, but the message behind it well, is yeah, a lot about that, right? The, you know, the message 
I'm going to jump back just really quickly of working at a mortuary, right? I remember I was managing this restaurant when I was like 21 and I didn't want to, I didn't want to do that. And I had this one customer in and one day, you know, he would come in the morning, get some coffee and I'd go talk to him for a little bit. His name was Mike Ross. And I said, Mike, so what do you do? And he tells me, and he like managed all of these different mortuaries. And then like less than a month later, I hit him up and I said, I want to come work for you. And he's like, oh, what? You want to do what? I'm like, yeah, man, I, that actually sounds really romantic. And to be there helping with people, helping people in their hard time and driving the hearse and, you know, the whole thing. Um, it was like the best job I ever had because I was around something that was true. Right. It's true. Now, whether you want to look away or not, what is going on that day, somebody passed. Yeah. And now you're there, and I would sit through these like fantastic eulogies, like incredible, you know. I guess it's the same when people celebrate life, right? I've been, I was at a funeral celebration, I would say three years ago, where Kiss performed. Yeah. And I was like, this is this, I've never been to like, you know, usually go to funerals and people are very sullen. And, and I was like, this is actually, someone passed away and they hired Kiss to perform. This is definitely the strangest kind of funeral celebration. But the idea of celebrating someone's life is also pretty fascinating and interesting and you looked at it from the opposite perspective which is like let's embrace this and let's talk about the love and as opposed to you're right i would i'm probably one of, one of those look away kind of people where mm. you know it's it's just uh it, it's hard you want to celebrate their lives but it's also sad in a way well i mean it's it's inevitable so to treat it as sad or like any of those things like i i just lost like the my uncle that i was closest with in my whole life he just died yesterday wow, you sorry know about that. i appreciate that and uh, but i mean it's also like um, death is just, that's just, that's the other side of the bookshelf yeah. that's holding the, the books up. You know what that's I mean? True. It's like, that's just, there's no way around it. And yeah. to, and to try to, you know, scorn the inevitable. If you're going to treat birth as a gift, you, you've got to treat death the same way. No you know? So let's talk about how you go from working in this portrait, eventually writing songs, meeting the other guys in the band. I know there's a MySpace history, which some people talk about. Oh, but. yeah. I don't want to talk about that. That's just like, you know, like the or the real origin story is in, you know, Wikipedia. I was just I was notified about I was like, why are we always talking about MySpace or whatever? But, you know, but, you know, you go you go by your resources. Sure. Really, the band got together. I was a. Uh, I had a very healthy career as a singer-songwriter, and I play here in town in L.A. Um, but I don't, you know, like my band, we never really got bigger than like selling out the Troubadour, mm. right? So it's like that's good, but it's there's a lot more to life. Real, yeah, and, and and touring coast to coast, you know, did all of that and was doing really well. But um, I broke that band up because I was feeling, and this was like an 06, I was feeling creatively that I needed to completely shed my skin and approach the art in a way that was going to be closer to the bone for me. And the responsibility of having a band of people that I loved so much, you know, it's like when you're, when you're going to be in a band and like you cut your teeth on the same bones together and you go through so much. The idea of like splitting a band up is, man, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. Right. But I knew that I needed to do that because I needed to, I took, I remember I took the hard drive with our whole email list and everything, broke it and just burned everything. And I just sort of like one of those Cortez, like sh burn your ships at the shore, you know, <laughs> got to go in. And everybody told me it was career suicide, but I knew that I needed to completely change the way that I was approaching things so that I'd play like 
Um, you know, I'd go play at the hotel cafe and just really experimenting on what I was going to be doing, putting different bands together. And Did you have labels coming down to check you out at that point? Yeah, or? independent labels. But at that time, I knew that I didn't want to link up with anything because I was in a, in a, a time of very, very intense growth mm. and rebirth. And so that wasn't the time to lock arms with an end product because they'll inevitably try to shape you and you'll try to shape yourself. You know, if you're at the end of the story first, which yeah. is perfectly fine if you're writing a screenplay. And this is what, 2008, 2009? Um, yeah, that was lasting through 2006, 2007. And then I was writing and producing, uh, I was recording like my magnum opus at that time. And uh, that was the result of this new, this new approach to songwriting and music. Um, and I was just finishing this record and then... Our drummer, uh, Michael Miley, who I had known since like 99, and he had played in uh, bands that I had, he hits me up out of nowhere and says, you know, hey, have you checked out my band? And he would send me emails, uh, but they were just always, you know, guys with like double neck guitars and like bell bottoms and stuff like that. And I'm just going like, yeah, man. Yeah, I, ch ch I checked you guys. I hadn't listened to anything. Like, yeah, I checked you guys out. I keep meaning to get to a show. You know, but um, but he goes, listen, my my guitar player saw a video of you, and he will just won't let up. You know, and uh, I said, you know, he he said, would you consider being in our band? I said, no, I don't want to be in your rock and roll band. You know, because at that point, also, you were thinking singer songwriter. I was just thinking, like, look, rock and roll. When it's done right, it it takes you somewhere. Yeah. But when it's done wrong, it's just a bunch of posturing dickheads. And you see it. And you go like, oh, man, that just that turns me off. But when you see, like, it has to be the right people doing it the right way. And I'm not purporting to claim that we're doing it the right way, that I'm doing it the right way at all. But I can tell, I'm just doing I can it, tell you are. <laughs> I'm, doing, I'm just doing it the way that I can do yeah. it, you know. And, but for me, I was just turned off by so much of what was being considered rock and, and rock and roll. I had grown up like on the classics and I had grown up very heavily on the blues, like big time. And so, you know, everything from the blues breakers and the Jeff Beck, like the truth album and, and the, the early Zeppelin and the stones and the kinks and like that type of stuff that was good. But even a lot of that was shit too, mm. you know, that I would hear on these records like, wow, oh, man, you're going language. back to Robert Johnson, some of the yeah, really Yeah, for early... me, you know, going going back and listening to to Lead Belly and like Blind Willie Johnson. Yeah, like Robert Johnson was great, and that was probably like the first that I got. Uh had the like the collection, like the the full tapes, you know. <laughs> yeah. But um but anyway, so what I did is 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 Miley just said, well, okay, well, whatever. I understand. But can you just at least call him because he's not going to get off my back? So I called him and we start talking about the blues. And Scott talked a really good game about the blues. So I'm like, well, wait a minute. Maybe this guy's the real deal. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. So then, uh, so then I just said, like, look, let's get together and jam. What's a, you know, I'm just thinking, have just play some shows around town. I'm really busy getting this other thing off the ground. Like I'm relaunching everything. And I just thought, ah, this will be fun. You know, maybe a couple nights uh, out of the month, go and just, I don't know, kick your heels up and, and play some rock and drink some beers. That sounds fun. Oh my God. It took off like a rocket. 
You got together and it was magic. Well, yeah, we got together in a room and it, the, um, we basically just jammed, you know, like they had, they had some music that they had recorded already and they had had another guy. Um, and so I listened to one or two of their songs and roughly learned that, but then we just freeformed. And next thing you know, it's like two hours later, we walk outside and it's like, yeah, I guess, uh, I guess I got to do this, you know, <laughs> and because it was just so evident, like it would be a shame to not make music together. And then, uh, did you go back by the way and listen to some of their earlier recordings at that point? Well, no, I mean, for them, they just had the one album that hadn't come out yet, you know, and it was, you know, there were some good songs on there that, that I thought were good songs. And there was a bunch of stuff that I didn't really relate to, but like, um, we ended up, I jumped into the studio and retracked the vocals, which is wild for me. I've never done that. I've been sing somebody else's songs or whatever, but I just looked at it and went like, well, they worked really hard on this record and it's a good record. It would be, it'd be a shame to just let it die. And it, plus we need a promotional tool. You know, if we're going to play gigs, we need to be able to pass out albums. Yeah. So this is 2009. Um, before yeah, the fire. Late, late 2008. And then, um, you start working with Dave Cobb. Yeah, start who, who start working with day, Dave by Cobb. The way. Yeah, yeah, every record with Dave. You know, he's absolutely family. Um, Let's talk about, by the way, your relationship with Dave. If, if people don't know, Dave is one of the greatest producers right now in music, and you have not worked with anyone else, to my knowledge, right? So this is like eight albums in working with them. Yeah, uh, Rival Sons, I mean, yeah. We haven't worked with anyone else. And the reason, I mean, you know, like, Dave is just, he's family, He's a very, very close friend of mine, and, um, you know, he's the reason that I moved out to Nashville in the first place, because he's like, he was telling me, I'm going to build this empire. He's like, come out. And he did, you know, and uh, he's just incredible. A very natural approach, mm. very relaxed, very, you know, he doesn't have a sound. I don't, I don't feel like there's a Dave Cobb sound. He's there to serve the artist. And... Uh, a fairly transparent producer that way, you know, where like other producers, they'll get in there and they'll just wrestle it to the ground and make it have that, <clears throat> that certain sound. But for him, he, he's really about serving the artist and just capturing an honest snapshot of where they're at. It's also pretty interesting because those earlier records were very spontaneous. Very spontaneous. I think yeah. you just went into the studio and you basically created music. I think there maybe there were some ideas, and but you really didn't pre-plan any of those records, right? Well, with the first three, four records that we did, um, we like it was a conscious decision. We went in there and just we went in there with nothing and just start writing every day. And for me as a lyric writer, and I'll write complete songs, I'll write guitars, I'll write everything. I'm used to doing that. But, you know, like my, my writing partner, Scott Holliday, you have to pass the wheel back and forth. You know, you have to do that because we're talking about people's identity and a collective identity for the band. Um, and we would get into the studio in those early records and just write and record. We'd write a song and record it that day. And for me, you know, I, I try to write good lyrics. I do the best that I, I'm, I'm capable of. I try to write honestly. I mean, that it would have me in the fetal position waking up in the morning in the shower just going like, I, I can't do this. 
I can't do this. I don't know where any of this is going to come from. And everybody's going to be looking at me. What do you got, Jay? I don't know. It's not what I got to do. Isn't like writing a, a quick part or a quick line. It's very, very different. You know, it's music and lyrics and like, I, 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 I don't know what I'm going to do, but it was one of those things to where just like stretching yourself over the anvil over and over and hammering, hammering it out. Um, it became one of those things where it was, uh, it was about just staying in the ring, mm. stay in the ring and even, you know, don't get thrown out. Don't get knocked down. Just stay in the ring and you're, you're going to write something. You're going to produce something. And then, developing the instincts more and more of doing that so many times made it like, oh yeah, yeah, you can actually I think we can do this. Uh, we don't make records like that anymore. That, well, I, I think it took years off my life. <laughs> it's interesting though, when you listen to a record like Pressure and Time though, it still sounds so relevant today and I think when you, when you listen to those, I'm sure you don't listen to those records on a daily basis but if you do revisit those records because I know you just finished the tour where you played you know, your first oh, record right, yeah. in its entirety, how do you feel about that music now when you, when you kind of reflect back on it? That's a good question. Um, when we, when we, went, we went coast to coast in 21, um, and we played the Pressure and Time record in its entirety, you know, along with like, once we got that done, we did like the greatest hits and the singles after that. Um, but it was a really interesting situation, Scott, because, uh, at that time we were already neck deep in this, in the Dark Fighter record and Lightbringer. The, the two albums that we have coming out this year. So it's like the old and the new. This complete and, and we are we completely reinvented the, our approach to writing with this current music. So to be fully immersed in trying to create this, we're going to take a break and we're going to put on our old Letterman's jacket from high school and see if it still fits, <laughs> and get out there and play this music that we created. You know, <clears throat> eleven. 12 years ago now and we're going to relive that and it's such a trip because the band has only gotten better you know and and so our approach to you know the stagecraft and actually communicating and playing these songs certainly gives you an advantage but for me it was very interesting of going okay I wrote this I don't really feel that way so much anymore but that's the way the song goes and then this other song would come up and I'd go oh man seems like a pretty trite song a little bit of moon spoon in june there you know and just these different things you're naturally going to be critical but i think that by the end of the tour um because we we did it in europe too by the end of the tour it was like okay i think we're good on that <laughs> it's a great album yeah, and it's great it's, album. it's really great to hear you say you know that it, it still has a, a relevance to it but um yeah, it's trippy. You, that's that's like the burden that you have. The more you create, the more moss you accumulate, you know, and that's part of your identity. And I, I, for me, typically, I tend to never want to look back because it's all about who you are right now. By know? the way, it's probably really hard to pick out a great set list because you have so many great songs Oh, it's, now. it's murder. It's like it's probably like an hour discussion between the – or do you just, yeah. just go out there and wing it? Are you? No, we'll go out there for the most part. I think that – you know, I'll leave that stuff to Scott because he has so many guitar changes and he's manning all of this, you know, his uh, effects situation 
you know, that for him, if I go, oh, well, we should do this song right after that song. He's like, dude, that's a totally different guitar. <laughs> right. And you're going to drag down a key. My, okay. Yeah, my tech is going to kill himself like right. in between these two songs. So, Well, taking it back just a moment, we were just talking, Jay. So I think 2010, you signed to Earache Records. Talk to me a little bit about your relationship with the, quote unquote, the industry at this point. Because now I think you bought back the masters and the yep. rights. And for a band like yourselves... Owning your music now, you know, signing to an indie label early on, but but wanting that, you know, because ultimately you connected with Atlantic too, right? Yeah. Talk to me about kind of your relationship with the the industry at this point and how it is for you. Well, I think, you know, all through the two thousands and everything, any record deal that I had ever signed was always independent. Now I was courted by and you know thought about dancing with the devil earlier on. But the industry was in such a state of flux because the internet was just taken over, and, you know, and it was a weird situation. And, um, and so, so taking and working, uh, taking independent deals and working with independent labels gave, it always gave me freedom. You have freedom because you're not part of a, you aren't beholden to a bunch of people that you just don't even know who they are, you know, um, so for us, we were looking at it uh, when Eric Records came knocking. It was really a trip because I'd never heard of Eric Records, but they were a stalwart in the death metal scene. I wasn't familiar with death metal at all, <laughs> not, not at all. Some I didn't scary music. By I the way. didn't. Well, it seems scary. I listened to it, <laughs> and it certainly sounds like a soundtrack yeah. to um, murder. A life I am very unfamiliar with, you know. We take it easy in Southern California. Yeah. Uh, you ever watch any of those documentaries on the black metal scene from Norway? It's of course, scary no stuff. mayhem, and yeah, you know, scary, I, I know stuff. some of those guys. And um, but what I didn't know, and, and the rest of the band too, is the commu the death metal community is filled with amazing people. You don't, you except know, for mayhem. Maybe. Well. <laughs> Anybody that, yes, yes. You know, people that are going to cause harm to yeah, other people, yeah. of course. But that's, you know, you have very, very uh, poor decisions wrapped yeah. up in there. And okay. you have a lot of trauma that caused them to want to live that way or burn down churches. Yeah. I, You know, I don't know. But some of them are yes. good people, I guess. Yes, I know. <laughs> I know some of them and they are certainly good people. Yeah. But um, so we were very unfamiliar with this. But then... Uh, by signing with Eric Records, and they're out of uh, Nottingham uh, in the UK, by signing with them, we were suddenly in league with all of these metal festivals, and not just death metal, but just metal um, in general. And like the first uh, European tour that we ever went on, we were first of three. It was us, Queensryche, and Judas Priest. I mean... I was it was wild for us yeah. because we didn't know we didn't know what to expect because we recognized like wow that's not doesn't really feel like our scene but we were also being short sighted. Were you I, into any of those bands growing up at all? Because I know uh, a little a little bit of Priest. Yeah, you know, um, Queensrÿche was never necessary. I didn't have any albums, yeah. but Priest is. I mean, come on. Yeah. You know. Rob Halford's great. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. But uh, we didn't know what to expect because, like I said, naively we were looking at it. We we couldn't, we weren't drawing where we were on the family tree and where they were. Mm. Because the truth is we're just, we're an offshoot. We are part of that lineage, you know. And our, 
Um, Digby Pearson, uh, who the owner and, and the operator of um, Earache Records, what he had said is he said, you guys are part of that lineage because you are, you make the rock, you make the rock and roll music that came just before they came on. True. You guys are playing, so that's why this works. That's why it makes sense. You are in that family. You just don't realize it. Mm. And it was like, you know. So then going over there and looking at it that way, it made so much more sense, you know. And subsequently playing with so many other metal bands and metal festivals and all of that, like, okay, well, we're the only rock and roll band, you know, that isn't like a cover band. Yeah, what are some of your recollections of some of those early van tours and being on the road in the U.S. and Europe? And it's just some great stories about that time period for you. You know, I, I think when you're going through that stuff, I think that if you just keep it in mind, because it can be really, really grueling. Yeah. You know, and it is. I mean, it is really grueling. You know, the, the no sleep early on, you don't have a crew and you're driving and you're doing all of this stuff. And, but that's what bands do. So it's like to say like, oh, it's grueling and it was just so rough. Like, man, so many people are going to be listening to this and they're in a van. They know exactly what I'm talking about. It's just part of the ride. That's, it's a very, very necessary part of, it's part of the timeline of any professional musician. Do you romanticize about this time period or do you look at it like, you know, we cut our teeth, but, you know, I'm happy that we're at where we're at now? Well, I think that wherever you're at, I think that it's very important to recognize it as necessary. If you look at it, if you look at it and you're scorning it the whole time, you're just going to be miserable. And I've toured with people like that that are mal, you know, malcontents. They want something before they've earned it. You know, they want to be treated a certain way or they want more respect or they want more adoration before they've earned anything. And uh, that's a real drag to be around. And it definitely uh, it definitely makes everything more difficult for not only them, but like just for the group. So I think that uh, I've always been a big one with like, this is where we're at. If we're playing to 20 people, if we're playing to five people and a bartender, Let's play to 2,000 people. Yeah. And that's what we're doing. And that was kind of our thing right out of the gate. Um, we're up there to play for ourselves. The audience, if there's an audience, great. It, because it's the whole, like, you will be so demoralized if you play that game. I can't sit here and tell you, like, oh, it's all about ego. No, it's not. It's just, it's not just ego. It's a, that's a practical thing. You don't want to be out here playing to nobody. Were there early gigs that you were playing for five people in a bar? Oh, it happened. <laughs> it, well, it really happened. It really happened on when we began touring in the U.S. and we were hitting these territories. I remember playing like Iowa City. Right. And we literally, it was like us and, you know, Jessica Von Rabbit from um, Out in the Desert. <laughs> right. And she was out there too. And we both played to nobody, like three people. And we so we just sat there and talked and had some drinks and made a friend. But... It happens, you know, same thing happened in Cleveland at the like Agora ballroom, you know, yeah. an old Alan Freed place where you just go like, we're here. Let's just, let's play every night. Let's play like it's the last time we're going to be able to do it and just play for each other. But so that happened once we began touring here in LA, funny enough, like we played, our first show was down in Orange County at my buddy's old club. It was called the Gypsy Lounge in Lake Forest. 
That was our first show. Second show was at the at the uh, the Derby over here. Sure. And I think the Derby's gone now. Yeah. Um, so then that was at the Derby, and then our third show was at the Roxy. And people came, you know, and we let people know. So then that packed out. The very next day, my buddy Joe Rinaldi hit me up, and Joe was doing the booking f- across the street over the House of Blues, you know, when the House of Blues was still here. And he's like, Jay, what's up? Uh, what's up with, uh, with your band? And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, I've heard that there's like some super band. I'm like, come on, man, what are you talking about? And he's like, no, no. And he goes, I have a proposition for you. All right. And he says, I'm going to give you tickets and I'm going to pay you to play at the House of Blues. I'll give you all the tickets you want. And you just put, you give it to all your friends. Yeah, Joe, that sounds great, man. <laughs> so then for us, like... Because those well, are like the early pay-to-play days, I believe, right? Well, yeah, we never did yeah. that. Like, you know, you can be over the... That's why, like, I've never played the whiskey yeah. in my life. It's strange. You know, people don't I'm, know that you'd have to actually buy a certain amount of tickets yeah. to perform there, which is a very strange concept, but I guess they just didn't want to lose their ass or align with a lot of bands that would... Think they could draw and they couldn't draw, so they were just covering their. Expenses. I get it, but, but the and hey, look from a for a club owner, I understand that you yeah. know we I'm a business owner as well, but for me the idea of paying to play was at odds with the very nature of what what art and music is, you know, because it's uh, it's it's very restrictive for these bands. So you get you know around here, like I said, you know, like the whiskey, well, like they get all of these bands that, that that are coming in from the Inland Empire who just want to play the the world-famous whiskey. Right. And these bands come in and they lose their shirts yeah. because they can't bring their buddies out. And so it's like it's it's a really, really vicious cycle, you know. But there are a lot of clubs that, like, we I, I never played specifically because of that. But the House of Blues, Joe Rinaldi gave us a huge leg up. So thank you, Joe. Um, and he we packed it out. It was like the Daylights and like a couple other bands played, but we got there and immediately, um, you know, like Azoff Music Management came. Tom Consolo picked us up, you know. Brett Steinberg arranged all of that from CAA. And, um, so it happened fairly quickly. It happened like, it happened, we had a manager and we had representation, like everything within like five gigs. Amazing. That doesn't make any sense. You know, like it, it's too crazy. So then that took off like a rocket and it was like, okay, now we're going to plan, you know, we start getting everything and Tom did a really, really great job. Uh, excellent manager. Um, in, you know, getting us exposure and introducing us to people. And then, um, you know, we licensed a, a song to the Indy car race, you know, for IZOD. And that gave us a ton of exposure. Next thing we know, we're the first band to ever play out on the bricks, you know, for Carb Day in Indianapolis. Amazing. At the track, like, and it's just insane thing. It all happened really, really fast. Far faster than I, I thought it, it was going to. In 2011, you released what is, could be, I guess, your seminal record, Pressure in Time, uh, one of the, the great rock records of the last 10, 15 years. So again, just like reflecting back on that record, it's such a great record. Uh, and you just went out, like we said, when you, when you did it in its entirety. 
how do you feel about like just the state of where your music is going now? Because now you're taking like two or three years to write a record, right? You talk about yeah. the new record a little bit, Dark Fighter. This record, I think it's four years between this record and your last record, right? Well, yeah, Feral Roots came out in 19, and then we were having the best professional year, you know, of our career. Uh, that album did great. We got a number one with this song, Do Your Worst. <clears throat> so we got a number one at rock radio. We got two Grammy nominations. Incredible. You know, so it's like we're doing the whole <laughs> yeah. thing. And it was like auspicious, like, uh, because we get to the ceremony. It's like, okay, so we're here. I had a, like a real nice suit made and got tickets for my parents and all of that. And then we're there over at Staples Center. And I find out on the red carpet when we're doing interviews and all of that, that Kobe, you know, and the Kobe and... and had passed and that whole situation like what mm. so like i'm on camera wait what happened so then we're we're at the staple center having an award show almost and kobe like... oh, that's so heavy. kobe bryant is gone so we're there and it, it just it threw this real like dark cloud oh real dark cloud man if it were anywhere else Anywhere else on the face of the earth, it wouldn't have been that way. Yeah. But we're, we're right there. So then, you know, hang out for a bit. We didn't win the awards, but to be nominated, crazy, you know. But then we go outside, I remember that night, and just trying to get back to, you know, cars and all of that. There are people holding like a candlelight vigil for Kobe. Mm. And here we are, you know, coming through, you know, dressed to the nines cutting through there it was just it was a terrible situation you know uh but it was really trippy because that happened and then next thing you knew the shutdown happened you know so it was like okay ramp up ramp up ramp up and pause you know (laughs) well yeah pause and then nobody works nobody tours and so i think that very quickly um within a couple of months after like okay well this tour is going to get canceled because nobody can do anything and then it was like okay everybody just stay in your house for like two weeks is that cool (laughs) yeah what about three years yeah (laughs) so um so we we immediately began work on the next record and we had to work remotely so scott and i were passing songs back and forth and um and we had time so we took time and so the the crazy thing about that is we never intended to take that long making a record. It's actually ridiculous. By the way, you're also not the kind of band that can do a record over Zoom. There's no, I mean, you have to get in a room. No, yeah, you have exactly. To play. I don't feel there's any part of you. There's so many artists that I interview, like, we were sending some files back and forth. That's not right. That, yeah, th- yeah, that's not us, um, certainly. We, it's, it's about the kinetic energy and the, yeah. you know, the symbiotic nature, the way we play when we're together. But we took time because we had time. But see, it, work, it also works this way. Through the shutdown and like everything that was happening, you know, first you have a virus, you know, and then you have the p- politicalization of a virus. Yeah. Okay. In the meantime, you have death and like you have all of these other horrific things worldwide. Um, and then you get uh, the election years coming. So it's just more mudsling. And then you have, you know, 
George Floyd's terrible death. Black and Lives then you Matter. have Black Lives Matter springing up. You have all of this. And then you have Antifa doing their thing. And then you have, it's like everybody is losing their shit. And it's like, there are, there are like dividing lines being cro- being laid down in every direction. And, you know, that, I like to call it like a cultural, cultural mitosis. Right. To where it's all okay. So we're going to cut it this way and cut it that way. And then, you know, every time you hang out or you talk with family, a new topic comes up. And this is right off the heels of like Me Too was just getting its steam, you know, and some justice was being served. And then, you know, it's like everything was so crazy. And then you have that. And at the same time, people are being told to be afraid of each other, be afraid to go outside, be afraid to be together. And I understand, you know, it's like we have a virus. There's a, we, there's an issue, you know. And also you don't want to tour and get people sick. There was that whole. Of course. We have, I don't want to get my, don't want to, well, don't want to tour and get people sick. Can't tour. Can't tour. It's shut down. And um, so in that time, so much was going on. And I had a, a child in 20. So then since he was coming, we were living out in Nashville. I moved back to California to raise him around, like, you know, family. Um, so doing all of this, what is crazy about getting the, this music together, we would go into the studio for a week, and then um, we would have this refractory period of a couple of months, and so much would happen in that short couple of months that it was like, okay, well, here's five more songs. Okay, and then we'd get together a couple months later, and it was like, like things kept coming, like a bull just kept barreling through the room, and, and you know, tons of death in my life, and and in my personal life, and lost a, a lot of really important people in twenty one, um, and so there was just this cataclysmic, uh, nonstop change mm-hmm. going on. And so every time it, every time it looked like it was time to wrap it up, it was like, no, there's more. There's more to say. There's more. You're not done puking. (laughs) (laughs) There's still a little more in there. More needs to come up. And, um, and that's really what it became. Well, let's talk about the process for this record in particular, because normally, how do you guys write? Is it that you bring in the ideas? Does Scott bring in the ideas? It works both ways. You know, I, I've brought in like complete songs and Scott will present things to me where it's like a complete, okay, here's the music for the verse. Here's music for the riff. Here's music for this. But then we tend to not go too far. Mm. You know, if I have lyrics, I'll have a chorus and I'll send it to him or I'll have verses. And we try to trade back and forth so that it really is a collaborative, you know, a collaborative thing because, you know, we're both capable of <clears throat> writing a lot or finishing songs and everything. But like I said earlier, it's about identity. And so we want to be careful not to do each other's jobs, you know, and like stay in your lane that way. But it really is like when he has something, he'll send it to me and then I'll just sit and I'll chew on it for a little bit. Like, what? how does that, what does this need to be? Do I even like it, you know? Same thing when I'll send stuff to him. I'd be like, yeah, I don't know, man. That just sounds like the J.B. Cannon solo song. I don't know if that's for us. And you had to get in the studio. You actually created two records, right? So this ultimately, is, yeah. I think 
Dark Fighter, but you have another record that's going to come out, I, I believe, like sometime later this year, too. Maybe right? in October, but it, I mean, it's going to be in the fall. Okay. It's going to be in the fall, and we're working to figure out when when that's going to come out because there's there's a lot to it. You know, there's a big team, everything from everybody working at the label worldwide, yeah. you know, distributors and then all of that. But uh, sometime in the late fall. Well, let's break down this record in particular. It's a, it's a monster record like I was talking about to you so before you came on. Just some of the songs lyrically, there's a lot to kind of draw upon. So ultimately, I think that one of the songs I wanted to talk to you about, which is a song that you touched base on, is the last song on the record, right? It's oh, about yeah. sort of your, sort of your, you know, the, the desk that you were just mentioning mm -hmm. and the fentanyl opioid crisis, right? Yeah. So let's talk about that and sort of what was behind that for you. Well, this is a tough one. Um, like my, my like ride or die did, you know, uh, his name was Ryan. And we grew up together as like my best friend, uh, family man, great dude, um, very dependable, very trustworthy. You know, he's the guy that would, if I was out on the road, I'd be like, hey, man, can you cruise, cruise by and just go uh, check in on my parents or whatever? Like always. Um, he had an injury, you know, some years back, years ago, uh, had an injury and <clears throat> got a prescription. So like a back injury and, and before that he had a knee surgery, but it's the, it's the textbook thing, really, really good dude has an injury, gets prescribed these pills, painkillers, and isn't given an exit strategy. He's got to take them so that he can keep going to work, provide for his family. A little bit becomes a little bit more. And then next thing you know, the prescription runs out and the prescription's over black market. And then it becomes well, they're not driving anymore. You know, that the person you know is not at the wheel. And so you watch this, like, slow motion decay. And the person that you know is, they're just not there anymore. Mm. Their family, everything, it's like all of us, I think that uh, when you watch that decline, you begin mourning as soon as you know that, they're, that that's going on. And so you begin, you mourn for years as they just slip further and further into darkness, you know, and they are, aren't themselves. But I was going through a period when, for the first time, he wasn't answering my calls. It's like, man, what is it? And when you have a, when you are, when someone you love is an addict, anytime you get a text message, anytime you hear from him, that's a good Anytime, just to know, because you're thinking like you walk around with the fucking sword of Democles hanging over you and you never know when it's going to drop. And so I think that you begin mourning that way. But for him, there was this period of when I couldn't get a hold of him. And that's what prompted that song, Dark Side. And I'm really not one to write songs that are so negative, you know, that it, that are so dark that way but that's really what it was it's you know the lyrics it just says because he was keeping it secret he didn't mm -hmm. tell me until he was a couple years in and when shit started hitting the fan he just he texted me he's like hey here's what's up we what you you're addicted to you know all of this stuff and, and you lost two other friends too i think the song I lost was about, two, yeah. yeah but i mean that one specifically was for him because i couldn't get a hold of him 
And when a, when a person chooses, you know, it's a, the lyrics say, there are no promises to keep anymore now that you've gone to the dark side. And, you know, the, uh, the deceit and having to keep it secret, um, the lyrics, you know, definitely uh, lend themselves to that. But no, I lost, you know, another friend, Fentanyl, you know, and he had struggled with it. And this is all, these are three of my very closest friends, very, from a young age. Um, and then, you know, he, my other friend, Ty, he overdosed, um, and he had been on in and out for years. So that wasn't as much of a shocker. You know, he had almost gone a couple of times, but, um, it was still difficult, you know, to watch him go. But my other friend was killed in a homicide down, down out of nowhere. And one of the best, just the best people ever friends from the time we were about seven years old. And, uh, his name was Henry Valdez and, uh, he was from Fontana, but he lived out in Orange County and <clears throat> out of nowhere, it was on my birthday. Um, his sister and I was playing a, a music festival up in Telluride, the Telluride Fest. It was my birthday. I woke up thinking like, all right, his sister texts me and says like, Hey, uh, um, want to talk about Henry. I'm like, what? And we get on the phone and he's dead. And it turns out, like it made national news, there was a PGA golfer down in Cobb County, uh, just outside of Atlanta, um, that was also shot. But on the news, you see that there was like a, a white Ram 1500 that was high centered, I think, on the sixth hole, you know, over a sand trap. And, um, this this PGA golfer had investigated, like, what's up? Why is there a truck out on the thing? So he went there, and there was some dude. He shot the golfer, and then uh, the golfer was found. And it made headlines because it's a, of course, yeah. you know, a famous golfer. But in such an odd homicide. But in the trunk was, was, you know, one of my best friends, Henry, along with his business partner. They were executed. Wow. So that was just like a crazy oh, thing. Yeah. Just crazy stuff like yeah. somebody that I love so much. He was supposed to be there with me and tell you ride. And I had begged him like, oh, come on. And he's like, well, I got to take care of this thing in Atlanta. But um, and so that was just a wild. There's the, the case is still ongoing for that, you know, in the trial. But um, but uh, yeah, it was just really traumatic to lose somebody that you love so much. That is such that was just so good. Of course. Um, in such in a way, uh, maybe tr- it's a healing, though, to write about it and, you know, put it out there in the world. I, I don't know. You know, it hurts so much when you get that, you know, deaths like that in your life. They feel much more traumatic, mm. whereas overdoses, suicides, different things like that, um, you deal with them in different ways. But I think Henry was really difficult, you know. Um, but all in all, like losing three pillars of my life in you know, the span of six months, it, be, it turns into one of those things where you know that it's happening and you can rationalize it and you know, like, what is, is. So there's no fight there. But I think that you just, you get into this zone where it's like your grief, your grief muscle just gets sprained and you just don't know how to grieve. Desensitized like, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, you too. just get desensitized yeah, like, yeah. and you're aware of it and you're just going like, well... I don't know. I'm not going to focus on it too much because grief has its own process. You know, there's a slow drip and it presents itself to you. If you got to have a breakdown, it comes, you know, it comes in its own time. Yeah. On a, on a brighter note, actually, literally my favorite song on the record, though, 
uh, Bright Lights, which yeah. is a great track, sort of about the reclamation of identity. Yeah. And, and I think, again, it's sort of a juxtaposition to Mirrors, which is the first song on the record. Mm -hmm. By the time this comes out, the record will have dropped right around here. So talk to me about Bright Lights, which is a, an amazing single. I, I, hopefully it'll be a single. Uh, one I of would the better love, songs on the record, I think. I, I would love for it to be a single. And, you know, Scott, you know, my partner, Scott Holliday, and I, we were just on the phone handling some business while I was on my way up here to meet with you. And we were saying, man, it seems like every time I play the album for somebody new, somebody else goes, oh, well, that song's a single, right? No, I don't, I, we're not sure, you know? And we, uh, so that's really good to hear that you feel that way about Bright Light. That's a song that we love. Yeah, because talking it, about the, sort of the meeting behind the song, because they put that next to Mirrors, there's an interesting concept between Certainly. Both. You know, Mirrors is just about that, the identity being lost, and you recognize that, you know, in Mirrors, the lyrics say, I, I lost my sight so slowly that I, I didn't even know that I was going blind. And, um, and then with, you know, with Bright Light, it's very much, it's about being rescued. It's about catching it you know it's about the nose di the 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 plane in the nosedive that pulls up just at the last second you know and then the then the john williams string music kicks in yeah. indiana jones style you know but like bright light was much more about like recognizing where you were it says uh it says uh i never noticed i was treating myself so bad uh hanging out on the line but I was a victim of a victimless crime because it was just, you know, when it's you that's making the mistake, yeah. you're the only one that sees it and you're the only one paying the price. So, uh, but then the, the chorus says, you know, bright is the light I see and the ship will come my way out to rescue me. And here comes the one that I know and the flag is waving high and I can see it with new eyes. It, it, for me with all, all of the heavy content on this album, to have a song where I get to sing that, I'm really looking forward to having that mantra, you know, on yeah. my tongue every night, you know, and therefore in the ears of the people that come to see us. Yeah, I'm stoked that you like that song. Yeah, it's great. Do you prefer this process of recording where you take your time? Obviously, there was a pandemic, so it led to two records and, uh, you know, a couple of years in making of this record. But in terms of just getting in there in the studio and just banging it out and coming out with a record, you know, a song a day, versus really taking your time and taking a couple of years to record a record, which process do you, you know, when you reflect back on it, do you kind of prefer? Well, I think that um, you're going to get, you're going to get, you're going to get different results from a different approach, certainly. And, um, but I think I, at this point, creatively going for the latter, it, it just seems to fit much more reflecting because in those early, in the, on the early records, when you get in there and just throw it together, well, you can make something hooky, but I just look at it and I, I made, you know, the band made a lot of great music, you know, like on the pressure and time record, a song like white noise. I think that's probably one of our best songs, Definitely. white noise or face of light. Like those are really, really good tracks. But then they don't always come together that way, you know, and then you find yourself just really, really trying to squeeze water out of a rock. And then you have the pressure of going, I need to do this. But then you've, you know, I would find myself in the position going like, this isn't art. I don't want to do it this way. I don't want to put myself under this 
stress anymore. I've done it enough times. So sitting back and there being some breathing room for contemplation and, and qualifying whether or not it's a statement that you want to make at all, you know? Um, sometimes it'll take me a long time to write a song. Some, there's one song on Lightbringer that I had worked on for three years, and then I brought it to Scott, and then we worked on it for three more years. Wow. You know? Four years in the making. Yeah, so it's like, it works that way. Yeah. But like all things end up being born and surviving the way that they need to as part of like a, you know, Darwinian uh, survival of the fittest sort of a thing. Um, for for this record or these two records, even though we parsed it into two collections, um, a lot of songs died, you know, huge proponent um, of creative abortion, like when you know that it's not working, just, it's okay, just lay it down, just kill it, and it's okay. You can take things that you like and all of that and just, yeah, just put it to rest. Don't overwork it to try to make it work. If it's not flowing, um, it's okay to just let it go, you know, because it would have, it wouldn't have survived in the way that would have been healthy. Anyways. It's a fantastic record, so I'm excited for the whole world to hear it. Fairly soon, you're embarking on this tour coming up. Yeah. I think there's some dates with Greta Van Fleet coming up. You excited about the tour? Let's talk a little bit about the tour. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we're going to play with Greta Van Fleet. It's always fun to play with those guys, and they put on a, a great show. Um, and their audience is a lot of fun. Yeah. You know, it's a lot of fun. Very similar audience, I would imagine, too. Uh, yes. Yes. They've, uh, they've just done a great thing. You know, they're... Um, their approach, watching them play live and, and getting to know them a little bit. It's just, it's great to see people having a good time yeah. making this certain style of rock music, you know. And from the outfits to their set design, like, man, they're, they're just going all the way. I love to see it. And, um, but we're also going out uh, to do our headlining run, and that's going to be, <clears throat> I don't know, late May. And I don't know if all of the dates have been announced for that yet, but we're going to be doing that. We've got to go over to Europe. We've got a bunch of festivals coming up. By the way, the last tour you got hit by COVID really hard. Oh, so, my God. So this is, uh, hopefully that won't happen again to yeah, you. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've done some touring since then, but uh, over this last year, when we first started jumping out in 2021, it was a really harrowing experience. And um, with COVID moving through the entire band and the whole camp, and uh, I had watched all of my friends. They just canceled their tours. They just stopped. Sorry, we got to we got to roll up the doors and go home because you lose your ass financially. But what we did on that pressure and time tour is we lost our asses, but we stayed on the road. We stayed on the road because we wanted to play music. You Luckily, know? you had like a drum roadie who was able to fill in. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Not the, usual, but you yeah. Know. We had a guitar tech who's actually a great drummer, and so he filled in. And then, yeah, we we had to you know play hopscotch with <laughs> the techs backstage, but we made it work. You know, thankfully. But yeah, it was it. You know, that was a real beatdown. But it, I think we finished out here in Orange County for that show, and the feeling that you get on that last show when you, everybody was telling you to hang your guns and to just cut bait and go home. Halfway through the tour, 
of not doing it and just hanging in there, I've never experienced a feeling like that. Even though it was, it was a bloodbath, you know, in a time when we could not afford it. We still made it work. And that, that feeling of not, of just of not giving up and being able to finish at home. And I don't think people something. know how expensive it is to be on the road at this point for bands. A lot of bands, just reading something that Godsmack was touring in South America, and they couldn't actually afford to stay on the road out there. It's That's, just way too expensive. That, this is a reality. Yeah. In Europe, you know, like for us, we're staring down the barrel of a, a European tour right now, and we're trying to figure out how we're going to make it work because inflation has changed everything. Yeah. And like, it, it's changed everything. And it's not as if it was like incredibly profitable in the first place, but now it's, it's damn near impossible, but we're going to do it because it's music yeah. and we're musicians. We have to play. It's not, it's not just about money. You know, we're providers. We have families. We have to make money, but it's, we also have, I've got a, a very deep, uh, need to play music. I have to play music. I started doing this before there was any money in it. And then crashed on couches and did it, you know, for next to nothing for a long time. Yeah, and by but the way, it, you've toured with almost every major rock band in the whole world. I don't think there's anyone you haven't toured with. So any of your best memories, that when you reflect back on those tours, whether it be Guns N' Roses, The Stones, so many bands that you play with. But. Well, I, I know this for sure. You know, we've played with Aerosmith a bunch of times. And... I I hung out with Steven Tyler and talked with him. Greatest. And he gave me some very, he just said some very, very nice things to me, you know, um, that, and to hear those things from someone as iconic, you know, and, I, you know, when I was playing coffee shops as a teenager, I'd play Dream On and yeah. all of that stuff. And um to get to have that experience, and I won't share those words, you know, here because it would just—I'd look like a real asshole. But like, he just said some very nice things to me that I—I I will never forget. Um, experiences like that. Um, one of my favorite bands to ever tour with. I mean, you know, we we toured a long time with Black Sabbath, and that was incredible. Uh, the Rolling Stones and. Um, I can't even imagine because you had you got to perform a lot the Sabbath and Bentley mm-hmm. in front of Sabbath. That yes. has to be daunting when you're playing Sabbath songs. I think in front of Sabbath. I don't think daunting is the word because like we had already played with them and toured with them where they it felt like a family affair. It didn't feel daunting at all, you know. Um, apples to apples, I'll put Rival Sons up against that. Not me, yeah. the band. Yeah, yeah. I'll put those guys in the ring with anybody. Yeah, you know, it doesn't matter who it is, but. It felt great to be able to honor those guys, you know, to honor them. Another one of my favorite touring experiences ever was getting to tour with uh, uh, Queens of the Stone Age. And and it, that's one of the best bands out there, just period, one of the very best bands. But then Deep Purple. Touring with Deep Purple was probably the funnest tour ever. Just a really, really great time. Amazing. Well, we always talk about, at the end of the show, your five things that we like to go over. So if you had to say, Jay, your top five live bands of all time, who would they be? Top five live bands. Um, the Refused, a punk band. Um, I would say, and this is, this is funny, because I don't listen to this band. But we played with them one time, and then I got it. Uh, 
kiss. I would agree, by the way. Yeah, and that's I'm not a kiss. I'm not. That's not. They that's put not on me. An incredible show. Yeah, they, they, it's the vaudeville aspect of it. I finally understood when I was out in Italy and I walked in the audience, saw all these kids with their faces painted, going like, "I get it. I I get it. I know why. I know why they're here." Um, but uh, let's see them. Um, I would say uh, I saw a band in uh, in L.A. Years and years ago, they they broke up immediately because they were too wild. But that was a a band called um, Beauty School. So they're dead and gone. Um, a band, one of the very, very, very best live bands I've ever seen, ever, was a band out of New Orleans. Um, and they were called The Pleasure Club. James Hall with The Pleasure Club. James Hall is still doing his thing, you know, down there in and Georgia and uh, New Orleans, but the Pleasure Club was an incredible band, and they they have a record that you can look up. It's called Here Comes the Trick. This is an amazing, amazing album. So, but I think they broke up, and so it just never came to fruition. But that was in the early two thousands. Um, another live band that is incredible to me um, would be the Rolling Stones. That's Still like doing it. Still that's great. well, it's like they wrote the book, so. They literally wrote the book on the whole. They wrote the book on the genre, and they're still out there doing it. And when when we got to meet those guys, and I was, <clears throat> I got to meet uh, Mick Jagger. I'm talking with him. His like youthful energy is scary. Scary. It's like it's like, it's really it's like it's scary. Yeah. Like this does all of this doesn't add up. But it's very, it's ob- very obviously authentic, very obviously just as authentic as it gets. But it's weird. It's, it's yeah, it, wonderful. I don't mean to say like weird. <laughs> well, June second, the record Dark Fire comes out. It's excited for the whole world to hear this. And then later on in the year, Lightbringer. Check you guys out on tour, rivalsons.com. It's been a pleasure. So happy to sit with you. One of the greatest voices today. So. I appreciate that, Scott. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. And check you guys out on tour. Hope to see you again soon, Jay. Appreciate it. Thanks, bud. Thanks again. This is Lips LA. Well, that was awesome. Jay Buchanan from Rival Sons, one of my favorite bands out there at the moment. One of my favorite singers. Check them out on tour. Greta Van Fleet and their own headlining bunch of shows. If you like the show, please make sure you tell some people about the show. Five stars would be great. Follow me on social media, at Scott Lips, on all available platforms. I appreciate you tuning in, and we'll see you soon.